Voice Nation. Greetings and felicitations, my corundomized comrades. I bet you didn't think you were going to hear that word today. And welcome to another high-flying installment of Device Nation. We're heading to cruising altitude today, so you're going to want to keep those tray tables up and your seat belts on as it's going to be an exciting ride talking to Dr. Tyler Noble, country music singing sensation, master wood craftsman, licensed pilot, flight simulation entrepreneur, and did I mention orthopedic surgeon? Time for some great quotes here about him. His feet don't get blisters, but his shoes do. He once went to a psychic to warn her. The circus ran away to join him. And my favorite, sharks have a week dedicated to him. No, we're not talking about the Dosecki guy. We're talking about Dr. Noble, the most interesting orthopedic surgeon in the world. You're going to want to hang around for that conversation. Well, let's come down from that lofty altitude for just a moment and go deep and wide. And why? Good luck getting that out of your head the rest of the week. So here's a quick start guide on why we're opening up this series on these two words. I had a couple conversations recently with reps that I don't consider myself worthy to shine their Kafaro shoes. Check those out, by the way. Always good to support a fellow device rep with a worthy side hustle. Talked to him yesterday. Great guy with a superhero name. Starring Johnny Cavaro. An incredible shoe designs. Check it out. Kafaroshoes.com. No, I haven't lost my place. These reps were sharing with me their concerns that even though they had decades of relational deposits into their accounts, gain sharing, RFPs, and single and dual vendor contracting scenarios had them very concerned. And I couldn't help but think if reps of their stature are concerned, even if we're not looking at those scenarios right now, wisdom would say, how do we prepare for it? instead of just reacting. A big component, in my humble opinion, of preparing for this is to make sure we are dug in deep in the four major spheres of influence in our job. And it wouldn't be a sales podcast here without a mnemonic. Let's go all salesy. Here you go. D for your doctors. E for employees of the hospital, everybody from scrub techs to the people in the warehouse to purchasing, on and on and on. Second E, employees of your company, companies that you represent. And lastly, P for peers, those people across the hall putting up implants that you either compete with indirectly, directly, or maybe not at all. Well, why are all these spheres equally important? Let's take a moment for a little theater of the mind and join me at the beach. We're going to walk out about five yards or so into the surf, and now we're going to move our feet around just a little bit. Get nice and settled. Get those feet nice and buried under the sand. If you've ever done that as a kid, it quickly becomes apparent that the waves just don't seem to have as much of an effect moving you around, right, when your feet are dug in deep. So that's the whole idea here. If we're doing the right things, digging in deep relationally and professionally with our surgeons, the employees of the hospital, our companies, and our peers, when that RFP slash implant standardization slash gain sharing rogue wave comes along, If you're dug in deep on these four fronts, you might find yourself not moved at all. Your customers will fight for you on that two-vendor contract if things go completely sideways and your company thinks you're valuable and you've dug in deep with them relationally, they're going to find a place for you. And even in the absence of that, your peers will fight to bring you onto their team because they think you are just that amazing. Being deep in these spheres can bring stability even in a confused sea state. Well, it's probably worth noting here that you can do all the right things on all these fronts, yet still get left out in the cold in these situations. But what's the alternative, right? We need to at least know we've given it our best shot and tried to do the best we can by all four of these groups. We're going to do something a little different today and bring reps on that I respect both professionally and personally to share their thoughts on this deep aspect and what we could be thinking about, what we could be doing. And then we'll tie that conversation up with my thoughts on the wide. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Stu Brandon. 
Hey, Kevin, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Stu, we're looking at deep doctors, employees of the hospital, employees of the companies, and our peers. Let's start with doctors. Where do you see our interaction with them in today's environment? That is a great question because if you would have asked me this 15 years ago, I would have given you a much different answer. It is the same basic thing now as 15 years ago is we need to figure out what each particular surgeon perceives as value. 10, 15, 20 years ago, that could have been just, hey, show me the new widget. Tell me why it's better than what I was using previously and have great service for me. Have everything I need there plus backups, et cetera. And not to say that those aren't important today because they are, but it is more complex today because what surgeons consider value is what I just described is probably a given to most surgeons. There's something else. If it's a private practice surgeon doing cases in an ASC, they may perceive something as valuable that an employed physician may not. So basically, it is to find out what each individual surgeon thinks is the most valuable and try and provide solutions for them that create the most value for them. The employees of the hospital covers a lot of ground from the scrub tech to central sterile to administration, purchasing. Any thoughts in terms of our interaction with them? What I have done my whole career, and I see people, other people in the industry do this, and I see some people who treat SPD extremely poorly, and then they go up to the OR and, you know, they they look completely different than they did just 10 minutes ago downstairs in the hospital basement. Uh, but what I have found is that ultimately, if you help out people in SPD, if you help out the OR staff, and you know, you're genuinely um, care for them and try and help them uh, do their job, it, it helps everything run more efficiently with what we're trying to do as, as reps up in the OR. It, it ultimately helps serve the surgeon better. I remember you telling me something some time ago about if you want to find out what a rep's really like, if you're looking to hire somebody, uh, tell, yeah. tell the audience what you told me. Yeah. So this was not, not me. Uh, I heard someone suggest that if you are going to be hiring a rep, you should check how they interact with sterile processing as well. And what this particular person told me is what he would do is go down to sterile processing and talk with the people down there and ask them who they think the best reps are and ask them why and ask them how, you know, how they interact with them, et cetera. And I think that that can be very telling because it would show how people truly are, in my opinion, on how they're treating sterile processing department. Agreed. How do you see our interaction with the employees of the companies we represent, from the people that are picking our cases week in and week out to the people that answer the phones and take our orders? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that that is very similar to SPD is the people that are picking our orders, you know, taking our orders, we're giving them our case schedule, et cetera. Those guys are dealing with a lot of stuff from a lot of different reps. And as you know, in our industry, there's a lot of 911 calls. They are stressed out a lot of times just dealing with however many people who are out there in the field who it's an emergency for them. If you think about their job, they're getting it all the time from reps, probably. So what I have tried to do over the years is, you know, get everything in as soon as possible, help them out in any way possible, whether that's making sure everything's all reset when couriers come to pick up stuff to really not hoarding instruments, inventory and instruments, et cetera, little things that we can do to help them out that when we are in a bind, you know, they, they will help us out as well, but it has to be, it has to be genuine. You can't fake it because that'll be, that'll be found out. Our last letter P for peers. Stu, how do you see us and our interaction with the rep across the hall selling products that may compete with us? How do you see that interaction going? I view this differently now than I did 10, 15 years ago. Today, 
as I no longer work with large uh, manufacturers, I really don't view anybody as my as my competition. And I view people as as my peers. I do understand that there is a competitive side to it. But at the same time, we are trying to find solutions and provide value for specific surgeons. And there's a lot of times what we provide just isn't a fit for people. And that's okay. And so if you maintain a strong relationship with those people, know them well, help them out. I mean, if you have a customer that needs something that you can't provide for them, refer them to the people that have the best solution for that. And I think that's something that reps will respect from you, as well as, you know, there may be a time where that that would be reciprocated to you. But ultimately, our industry is a very big industry, but at the same time, it's very small. And most people do change a company a time or two if they're in this industry for a long period of time. And so you truly never know when you may end up on the same side as some of these people as well. That's good advice for the people across the hall. One thing I wanted to ask you specifically is about the people on your side of the hall. I've always been impressed with what a wonderful team dynamic you've had with the group of gentlemen that you work with. I've seen functional teams over the years. I've seen completely dysfunctional teams over the years. Any advice for team members, as it seems like that concept is just getting bigger and bigger now, any thoughts on what it takes to make a functional team and what what to do, what not to do? Yeah, well, first of all, you mentioned big teams, and I see a trend towards uh, some mega teams, I'll call them, where you have 10 plus reps on a team. And what I see with that is, unfortunately, I see that that is fraught with challenges just from the standpoint of it is very hard to just say, hey, these three teams should merge together because it could help out things, efficiencies, help spread the risk, et cetera, which is very hard to do because just of the dynamics that you are not able to pick your teammates in that situation. You're just kind of thrown together. Right. Um, so I have concerns about that. I'm not saying that it can't be done. I'm saying that there are a lot of challenges. And one thing that our team did three, four years ago is we, we read a book called the ideal team player by Pat Lincioni, who's a leadership author. And I could talk about, about this book for, for a long time, Kevin, I don't think you want me to do it that long. The basic premise of the book is is an ideal team player has three qualities. They're humble, they're hungry, and they're smart. The smart is not intellectual smarts, although there's obviously a baseline for that, is people smarts. It's understanding how your words and your actions are affecting those around you. The humble is the most important part. And C.S. Lewis was famous for saying, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, is thinking of yourself less. I believe that, you know, any true leaders are are servants. Um, and the book just goes goes on and it'll even talk about combinations is if is if you have two of the three characteristics, what it is, and I'll just give you an example. If you are hungry and smart, or someone on your team is hungry and smart. Look out for that person because they're what Lincioni would call as a skillful politician. Those guys are the ones out there that will say the right things and they're hungry. They're just looking for promotion and they can they can kill teams. So we are not perfect in any way, but we have guys on our team that are striving to be all three of those. And a trust has been made and and. You know, we're not afraid to get after each other, but since there's a baseline trust, conflict is nothing more than pursuit of the truth. Sage words there, sir. I'll put a link to that book in the show notes for people that want to check that out. I appreciate you coming on and sharing some great advice, sir. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Kevin. One of the things that Stu said there that really jumped out at me was how we treat SPD and by extension, 
the people in our office. Here's a practical example for you. A friend of mine was looking for a high-level hire in a geographical area, was going through a little Rolodex in his mind of some names, and one in particular he threw out there and then immediately shot it down himself. I said, well, hey, 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 time out. What happened there? Turns out this particular rep had a reputation for being abusive to the people on the inside of his office and to people on his own team. And it's a fishbowl. This word got out even to my friend who did not even work for this particular company. So this particular rep will never know it, but he missed out on an amazing job just because he chose to go deep with his surgeons But everyone else, not so much. So something to think about, right? Well, here's something to think about before we open up the microphone to Dr. Tyler Noble. And that's the wide aspect of deep and wide. It's a two-front war. We talked about the deep aspect. Well, what about the wide aspect? What is that that's adding products to your bag that don't compete with what you have to give you a little freedom financially from the ASP pressures and from the people that just seemingly keep getting added to your team, right? You add a surgeon, well, we got to hire another rep, and then you're just stuck going absolutely nowhere. So what can we look at that can help us accomplish that? Well, I got some math for you. One plus one equals seven. Last week, we were taking out a Profemur Z Fully corundomized stem. That's the second time you've heard that word today. This stem is a challenge to get out because of that lateral prominence superiorly on that stem. It's very vexing to get a straight osteotome around it and then continue on down the canal. Well, that's not a problem for the good folks at Rivera Surgical. Check them out, riverasurgical.com. One properly sized medial blade, one properly sized lateral blade, one plus one equals seven minutes. That stem came out and it was picked clean. I firmly believe that this is the most exciting breakthrough in hip revision instrumentation since the explant blades for the acetabulum came out many, many years ago. Just incredible stuff. If nobody has this product locked down in your territory, then you need to contact them immediately. Info at riverasurgical.com. Info at riverasurgical.com. Tell them a device nation sent you. Great products and great people. Speaking of great people, we got Dr. Tyler Noble on the line, and I am so excited to share what he's got going on with the Device Nation audience. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your life and and what you've got going on over there in Conway, South Carolina. And I look forward to asking you about cabinetry, about music, about noble flight systems. But first, I want to go back to Virginia Tech. What put you on the path to medicine? Yeah, so medicine law is a a part of my life. I mean, my father was an internist. He was a, a gastroenterologist and couple other family members that were in the medical profession. So it was always something that I was interested in. It was never something that I was forced into or, you know, expected to do. But I always saw how hard my father worked and and then obviously his passion for, for being in the medical profession. And it was something that was very appealing to me. When I was in high school, my career path was actually um, looking to be a musician. You know, that was my dream is to, to be a musician. And my parents were very supportive of that. And then as I got higher up in my high school years and realized that music was something that I enjoyed much more as a hobby, something that I loved to do. Um, and I knew a lot of very, very talented people that were just having such a hard time. And it, it, what it did is I actually made them not enjoy it and love it anymore. So that's what really kind of turned me off to music. Then I have a real fascination and love for the you know life sciences and whatnot and so it was uh you know a decision that i made that i'm i'm really happy about never never turned back so you did your undergraduate studies uh you went to the edward via college of osteopathic medicine in blacksburg virginia what was it that said hey i want to do orthopedics there could have been any number of disciplines why'd you choose that Mm -hmm. 
what kind of led me down the path to orthopedics. Like so many um, people going through medical school, you don't really have a lot of time to figure out what you want to do with your life because the first two years you're in the, in the classroom feverishly studying for all your exams. You know, and then you get out on your clinical rotation and you maybe have four week rotation in your specialty if you're lucky. You know, my program, we didn't have a, an orthopedic um, rotation in our third year. So then you're starting to apply for residencies before you even really have a firm grasp of, of what these specialties are in a, you know, in a firm setting. I mean, obviously you can do some outside shadowing experiences and, and whatnot, which is helpful. But in that situation, I, I really kind of gravitated towards orthopedics because of my background. When I was in high school, I uh, started my next door neighbor where I grew up actually had a professional cabinet shop. And so I started when I was a freshman in high school working for him. I was doing the most awful job stripping furniture and <laughs> refinishing the furniture, which is something that to this day is, is not something that I enjoy. It's very, very right. tedious and there's not too much imagination that goes into it. It's just kind of um, elbow grease and labor. But as I worked in the shop, I quickly got more and more advanced with my with my skills. And then by the time I actually worked there also all through college to where I was kind of running the shop and, and in charge of all of the, the quotes and most of the most of the jobs. And so some people might disagree. You know, some other orthopedists out there might disagree that I've heard that, well, but people aren't made out of wood. And I agree with that. But I mean, a lot of the foundations and a lot of the basic skills that I use in the operating room about how I think about things and how I approach a difficult case and certainly any type of osteotomies or things like that, all of that calls upon the same skill set that you learn. That was something that was really second nature to me. And especially for, for joint replacement, you know, where you're actually reconstructing and you're much more tuned into the, you know, the anatomy, the biomechanics, specialty in particular, is just something that really resonated with me, what I've done previously. Is that what you believe steered you ultimately into joint replacement? When I was in residency, I learned pretty quickly that I was not somebody who really enjoyed the arthroscopy cases. I knew that I didn't want to do, you know, like spine, for example, you know, the two areas that actually really fascinated me in areas that I excelled were, you know, joint replacement and also foot and ankle. You know, foot and ankle has a whole lot of, you know, there's a lot of osteotomies. There's a lot of just careful cuts and repositioning and, and things like that. That you know, something that I, that I found very, very fascinating as well. But ultimately, I thought that joint replacement was where I felt most comfortable and, and enjoyed those cases the most. You ever find yourself in a case and think to yourself, if only I had a compound miter saw right now? I'm not sure exactly how, uh, how that would work. But. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been in practice for a few years now. Uh, tell me about it. What are you doing these days? Uh, what do you really enjoy doing? Mm -hmm. So I'm just past uh, four years out, pretty much exclusively uh, hip and knee, arthroplasty, primary revisions. I still take primary trauma call. Uh, so we're level three trauma. So, you know, we'll see some trauma that needs to be taken care of, but I'm not doing anything too crazy. But as far as my practice on day to day, I definitely like the primary um, hips and knees. I do all my hips, pretty much anterior approach, which was something that I didn't have a whole lot of training on in, uh, certainly not in residency. In fellowship, I did have some, but it really wasn't until getting out into practice and some of my, or one of my more senior partners really helped bridge that gap in going from posterior approach to an anterior approach, which I do think has made a, a tremendous difference in my patient outcomes and, and, you know, the early recovery and whatnot. Also, I'm becoming more and more a proponent of partial knees, another area that I didn't have too much experience in residency. My program didn't um, do a lot of um, unis. But I found in, in the right patient, you know, the recovery is just so much faster and patients are just so much more satisfied with their outcome. Obviously, just being careful not to be too overzealous because you can certainly, uh, you know, get yourself in trouble that way. Do you think it's the proprioception aspect of it? Because they, they're still getting information to their brain from the other two compartments going on there. And that's why it just feels like a normal knee or is there other things at play? 
Well, I think it feels like a normal knee because obviously you're not resecting their their cruciate. You know, you're. I mean, even with a cruciate retaining knee, you're still taking out the ACL. Right. You know, obviously there's a limited number of total knee designs that are by cruciate retaining, but for the most part, I mean, you are removing that. And so, especially with a posterior stabilized knee, people just really don't like the post clunk. Right. The, you know, from that from the posterior substituting aspect of that of that implant. That's probably the main reason why people feel like it's so much more of a natural need because you still have your ACL and you're just resurfacing the, the small part of the condyle. And even if you, even when you do a, a valgus stress in the office and you test their stability and you kind of clink it back and they feel that little bit of a click for the uni, I ask it just for my own curiosity. It's like, do you ever feel your knee click or whatnot? No. I mean, for the most part, people are really very satisfied that it, it feels like their normal knee. You can, um, tolerate quite a bit of patellofemoral arthritis and people still doing well. I'm not to the point where I'm completely ignoring the patellofemoral joint at this point, like some people could have, would advocate, but I have seen patients where I felt like I was maybe pushing the envelope a little bit with the patellofemoral and they just incredibly well. It's something that I've changed on my practice since I started as far as doing more unis. You are one of the most technologically adept surgeons that I've ever run into in my entire career. Where do you see technology heading in the operating room as a way of assisting your efforts? There's never been an industry where we have started using robots or technology and then decided that it didn't work and stopped using it. If you look at automobile manufacturing, CNC machining has completely replaced manual machining, all of these all of these areas. So it is not a matter at all of if, but when. And I think we're really starting to see, especially with all these different knee robotic systems that are coming out, the question is whether the results are going to translate into improved patient outcomes. And I think depending on which side of the which which side of the fence you're on, you can kind of look at the data and make it kind of fit what you're looking at. I think there's absolutely no denying the marketing aspect of these systems, which, you know, hospitals and the implant companies and surgeons have all realized. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think there's definitely something to be said for having reproducible accuracy of your of the cuts that you're intending to make. So whether you're a mechanical axis surgeon or whether you're a kinematic alignment surgeon, being able to make your cuts where you want them is certainly important. I think the real, I don't want to say danger, but the caution for all of these robots is for people using them as a crutch um, because I think the data coming out is only as good as the data going in. And so if you're not careful and you're making um, good decisions and good principles and arthroplasty to make sure that you have a good, uh, do a good case, I mean, the robot's not going to help with that. And so that is one thing that I have seen where people have gotten themselves into a little bit of trouble because the robot doesn't know what it's cutting. It's just cutting where you tell it to cut. But I I definitely think it's a, it's a growing technology and it's gotten so much better even just in the last several years since I've been out of my fellowship, it's just going to continue to improve. You know, who knows one day um, we might be operating from be more like a radiologist where we're, (laughs) we have a tech in the room, but we're operating from home with our, uh, with our virtual reality system. Who knows? <laughs> well, when you phrase it that way, it reminds me of autopilot on an mm-hmm. airplane. And I've got to ask you about that. I know you're an instrument rated pilot. Tell me about uh, your experience in the air. Aviation was always something that I've been very fascinated with. When I was in sixth grade, I first started flying remote control airplanes, building them up from scratch. And in some cases, promptly crashing them. <laughs> in college, I got my pilot's license and followed shortly thereafter to get my instrument rating to allow me to fly in bad weather and poor visibility and, and things of that nature. It's just something that I've always been really fascinated with and enjoy. Noble flight simulation, just an amazing concept that you've put together. Tell the audience about it, how you got the idea and where you are now. When I was in medical school, I realized that I didn't have as much time and disposable income as I would like to be able to to keep flying. I was in a flying club with a um, Mooney aircraft and it was just getting kind of expensive. And obviously I was more, 
I was busier, didn't have as much time to fly. And so I decided that what I wanted to do to maintain my proficiency in my specifically my instrument skills is I was going to make myself or I wanted to, to have a get a simulator. And so I was looking around and all of the simulators were just way out of my price range. And so I decided that, you know, I'm going to go ahead and build myself a simulator. And so I kind of started tinkering with it. And my roommate at the time kind of jokingly said, well, why don't you just make a simulator that moves? And I was like, yeah, haha. And then I was like, well, wait a second. Why don't I make a simulator that moves? <laughs> and so um, I ended up making a, a, you know, a full motion platform that moved in pitch, roll, and also heave. So up and down to be able to simulate turbulence and whatnot. And I made all the avionics with the, um, the glass cockpit that was modeled after the Garmin G1000, put the video up on YouTube and instantly got all sorts of people very interested about it and how I did it and whatnot. And the original system was so incredibly crude. It's not even funny. I mean, it looks really great, but the, um, I mean, the circuit boards, it was a 1970s technique of making circuit boards at home where you have a, basically a full copper clad circuit board. You print out the tracings on a piece of high gloss photo paper and you iron the toner onto the copper. So that you do an acid wash and it dissolves all the copper except where the toner is over it. So right. just absolute archaic technology here, but it worked really, really well. Gosh, that was um, 2007 when I did that. And so over the, over the years, it's just, grown into what we have now, which is a you know full-time business with uh, three employees. We've got software developers that were reprogramming or rewriting from scratch the avionics software. Our current market is primarily a group of pilots that fly what's called the Cirrus aircraft, because obviously as a small company, we wanted to focus pretty specifically on one area so that we didn't spread ourselves thin. And my partners and I all fly the Cirrus. My other, one of my other partners actually just took delivery of a new one. He's the one that's actually writing the, uh, the software. It's really great. I mean, we have units all over the world and we're currently, our hardware is in with the, um, the FAA for certification so that pilots can log their uh, log time on our hardware and be able to maintain their proficiency and currency. But at the end of the day, the reason that we did it was all for, for safety. I mean, the reason I did it for me was to make myself a safer pilot. All my partners were actually customers of, of mine who shared the same goal and the same vision. And so now we travel around with a group called COPA, which is the Cirrus Owners and Pilots Association. They have a aviation seminars called the Cirrus Pilot Proficiency Program, a CPPP. And so we travel around with our simulators and kind of promote our product to help people maintain their own proficiency because these, these are very complex aircraft. There's a lot going on. And if you don't stay at the top of your game, you can get in trouble really quick. I'm looking at the NFSG 1000 on your website right now, and I'm blown away at one thing. This incredibly complex and beautiful piece of equipment, and you're making it in your wood shop. <laughs> well, not, not exactly. Initially, I was. Originally, I had all of the molds made. Um, it was an aluminum mold for the front and the back. And then what we would do is we would make soft silicone molds of the aluminum master parts. And we would have an A and a B side. And then we would use a form of, of resin that's a um, polyurethane resin that has characteristics very similar to ABS plastic. But it, instead of being a thermoplastic where you have to heat it up to melt it and then it cools, it's a reaction plastic. So you mix two parts and then it hardens. And so we would mix it up and inject it into our, our mold and then get the molds out. The problem with this was even though the results came out amazingly good, um, it was very time consuming and there was a cure life or a cure time rather of about 12 hours um, for the batches. So we were very limited with, with what we could do, not only from a labor standpoint, but also just from a time demold standpoint. What we ended up doing is now all of our parts are 
professionally injection molded. Um, all of our circuit boards are produced. We've completely redesigned the way that we're actually making the hardware, pretty much the same way that the hardware is manufactured in the, in the real aircraft as far as the, the buttons are, are nice silicone buttons and, and whatnot. We use very high-quality LCD displays. So the one comment that I get most commonly is that it looks and feels exactly like it does in their airplane. So, yeah, that's something that we take great pride in and making what I feel to be the most realistic appearing hardware out there short of buying the real thing and and putting it into a simulator. So, yeah, definitely we've come a long way and and we've done it in a a responsible stepwise fashion that we were able to grow the business without overstressing it. But as we continue to grow, we continue to reinvest in the in the company and and keep making it better and better we've got a lot of really exciting things on the market from a uh, a full cockpit with a seat mounted and the the whole canopy we're also going to be radically improving different aspects of the um the software integration and whatnot so lots of stuff on the horizon so basically, your cockpit simulator interfaces with Microsoft Flight Simulator? Is that how it works? So, yeah. So there's three main flight simulation platforms. You have Microsoft Flight Simulator, and it just came out Microsoft 2020. And that is a completely new simulator. So that's not the Microsoft Flight Simulator that people have known in the past. It's a completely new one. The graphics are absolutely out of this world. They've used real satellite imagery with artificial intelligence to basically reconstruct with a very high level of detail the, the Earth's surface. Um, the problem with Microsoft 2020 is it really is still very much a game. It's great for visuals, but the flight characteristics of the airplanes and, and some of these things are still in its infancy with regards to that. Then you have what's called prepared 3D that's made by Lockheed Martin. And basically what Lockheed did, they purchased the rights from Microsoft. Five years ago or so, Microsoft sold Microsoft Flight Simulator to Lockheed, who re-coined it as prepared 3D, which is, so this is a different than the new Microsoft. And the, the prepared is what the military uses on their, you know, their F-18 Hornet trainers. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of military contracts with prepared. And then the third one um, is a program called X-Plane. X-Plane has been around for a long time as well. Arguably has the most realistic physics modeling for both the aircraft and the actual flight sim environment. That is most of the time the preferred platform that people will use um, is is X-Plane. So that's it's kind of the, the difference. And with our system, you're able to use all three of them. So we built it in such a way that you don't have to choose just one. Most of the time, you just have to choose one because they're all three very radically different. And we decided very early that we wanted to be able to support all three because hmm. there, there are definitely advantages to, to each. Right. How far off are we from being able to give virtual flight lessons, having somebody uh, virtually in the cockpit with us with your simulation system and being able to chalk up hours that way? So the precedence for that has actually been set recently by Liberty University. So with COVID, they have started doing virtual flight instruction where they have an instructor remotely who is using basically with Zoom technology or whatnot, they're actually able to see what the student is doing and see how they're flying, and they're able to log that time as flight instruction. Wow. So that's one of the big things that our company is really interested in. It's the post-sale engagement, you know, because if we sell a unit, that's great. But if we sell a unit and it just sits on somebody's desk and acts like a, a paperweight, that doesn't really help them become a safer pilot. It doesn't help their enthusiastic or their enthusiasm about our products to to have them tell their fellow pilots. And so it really is kind of a, a wasted sale in our opinion. So what we are really trying to do is find a way to maintain the utilization of our systems after the sale. My third partner actually used to be CEO of a of a large 
medical education firm. Everybody knows, but won't disclose on this podcast. He is very, very interested in bringing that, um, you know, that missing piece as far as the continual training and engagement to our products. And so one thing that we're actually looking into is designing our own remote instruction platform so that people can continuously work with flight instructors almost, you know, anywhere in the world. So if you, especially in the Cirrus aircraft, there are special flight instructors that we call CSIPs, factory certified by Cirrus to be able to provide the best type of training on that aircraft. And not every pilot has access to a CSIP. If we were able to connect uh, Cirrus pilots, say in remote Alaska, to a CSIP here locally in Pinehurst, North Carolina, then that opens a door that wouldn't have otherwise been there. Where do you want to see this go? I mean, what's your dream? I mean, I'm pretty much living the dream right now as far as the business is profitable. We're not having to invest our own resources into it anymore. That's awesome. And we're doing something to help the pilot community and make people better, safer, more engaged pilots. So none of us are doing this because we have to do it to pay the bills. Um, We do it because we're passionate about it and we love to do it. So we're able to reinvest what comes in to make the company better and improve our products. So that has really been what has really kind of fueled our innovation. Where can listeners go to learn more about uh, what guys have produced? Nobleflightsim.com. You can go on there and, and see some of the products that we have. People will purchase a whole system from us, including the the PC, desk, scenery display. So we offer it in a full package that includes everything except the chair. With that, you're able to you know get it all set up. We offer a two-hour concierge familiarization session with our tech support. They're able to log in and kind of show you how to use everything. There are some people that also either have their own PC already, so we do sell things differently. But most of the time, the easiest thing for people is just to buy the whole system ready to go. You see any mods that you could do later, like adding a a front-facing cannon or be able to drop bombs? Yeah, we have the bomb door um, in (laughs) development right now, but it's... uh, we're having trouble getting that one through the FAA, but it'll you know, one of these days. <laughs> My gamer side, it just always comes out. That's right. <laughs> I got to ask you this question. I mean, I hate to be morbid, but I think you know where I'm going with this. I, I had a surgeon who was a dear friend of mine, lost his life in a plane crash, and his partner told me that the mortality with doctors and airplanes was alarming. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts on it. I know your passion with this technology is, and you've said it over and over, is to create a safer pilot. But I wondered if you have any thoughts on that as related to the medical community. Before I became a physician, you know, I'd always hear that, you know, doctors make the worst pilots and whatnot. And then when I became one, you know, I I continued to hear it, right? Right. First of all, there's two different things at play here. Uh, The first one is, the amount of time that you have to maintain your level of proficiency and safety, right? And so by and large, doctors, lawyers, dentists, any, you know, professional that is successful, obviously you don't become successful by sitting around and not doing anything. So by and large, we are busy people. A lot of times the the only time that people will fly their airplane is when they have to go somewhere. And it's a big hit not only to your ego, but also to your to your family and anybody that was planning on going that trip. If weather turns up and goes, and weather doesn't look as good, and you have to cancel it, right? And so there's a huge pressure to be like, well, I, I spent all this time and money to to have this airplane, and the weather can't, and I now I can't go, and and so there's a significant sense of what we call got to get their itis is, is right. the term for it, yeah. where you know, something something isn't the way it should be. You maybe haven't flown in a couple months because you're busy, but damn it, I'm going to go. That is a very dangerous um, situation. And a simulator doesn't fix that by any means. But what it can do is it can help the pilot who 
has not had enough time to drive out to the airport, fuel up the plane, taxi to the end of the runway, wait for a clearance, take off, you know, flying, depending on where you are in the country, especially if you're in a busier airspace. I mean, it can take you 45 minutes just to get off the ground or if not more. And so it's not something that you can just sit down and do real fast. Um, whereas a simulator, you can sit down and you can fly five approaches in an hour and you can kind of maintain that level of, of proficiency and to, to keep your skills sharp. I think the, the main reason that people get themselves into trouble is just lack of continual practice and, and proficiency. I've heard this slogan throughout my life. There's old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there's no old, bold pilots. What does that mean to you? Well, that's specifically talking about orthopedic surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> no. So orthopedic surgeons do actually have a little bit of a bad rap um, for pilots because sometimes uh, we can be a little bit more bold-headed you know, and take a little bit more risks than, than maybe we should. <laughs> right. But, you know, that is very true. There's good decision-making and there's bad decision-making. And going around to these different proficiency program seminars, you get a sense really quickly that there are a lot of pilots out there that are probably not making the best decisions. The ironic thing and the tragic thing is that an accident is not a single event. You know, it's not just that you did this and then you had a, a fatal accident. So it's usually a cumulative buildup of multiple different things that happened at the right time, in the right order, that led up to a fatal accident. Right. It's what we call the Swiss cheese model. If any one of those events had not happened at that time in that way, at that particular with that person or that airplane, the accident would have been avoided. And so it's trying to break the behavior of when we see an accident, we just say, oh, well, that's just a, that was a stupid pilot, right? That was, that's kind of our defense mechanism whenever anything happens. Now, sometimes you're right. Sometimes it is a stupid pilot and it was a bad decision or it's something that shouldn't have happened. But right. a lot of the times it's just the, the consequent or the, the events that occurred in a specific sequence that could have happened to anybody. And so breaking that mindset when you're looking over accident reports to just dismiss it as a stupid pilot and that would never happen to you. And how many times are you in the operating room or if you're in a, you know, in a you know, conference and you see this terrible complication, it's like, Oh, that's never gonna happen to me. That just must be a terrible surgeon, you know? <laughs> right. And then when it happens to you, well, damn. So it's the same type of behavior. And, and piloting is actually very, very similar to surgery because it's a, a high stakes game where a lot of times you only have one chance to do it right the first time. Right. So I think there's definitely a lot of parallels to that. And that's why the um, medical profession um, does oftentimes call upon the aviation to help with you know checklists and, and safety aspects because there are there are certainly some very dire consequences um, on, on both of these professions that we do. I had a fascinating conversation with a surgeon once talking about dire consequences. So we were talking about JFK Jr.'s crash, and he brought up his theory, which was a death spiral. And I would love to hear you describe to the audience what exactly that is. It was It was pretty interesting. The difference between visual flying and instrument flying is obviously when you're flying visual, you can see the horizon. Even at nighttime, if you have lights on the ground, you can see your orientation relative to the ground. In JFK's situation, he was not only flying at night over the water, which is even without instrument conditions prevailing. If you're flying at night without any light, no moon, that will basically provide instrument conditions because you have no external references to see where you are. But in his situation, what happened was he flew into weather that he was not qualified or trained to fly in, lost his orientation. And what, what a death spiral is, it's right, your wings produce lift. And when you're flying straight and level, all of the lift goes towards keeping the airplane aloft. When you start to bank your wings, a certain vector of that lift goes away from keeping the airplane aloft, and it actually causes the airplane to turn. And so that's why you'll actually turn, because you'll have a lateral vector of your lift. And so what happens when you start to have a very a steeper and steeper bank angle, what happens is less of that wing 
is producing lift to keep you aloft and more of it is, is making you turn. And so what we see is when your wings are banked to a high level, then you'll start to lose your altitude. And for the pilot who is in an unfamiliar situation, not trained to deal with that, um, they start to panic because they see their airspeed is rapidly dropping. And so what's the first thing that you think to do is pull back on the yoke to, to get yourself altitude. But, but what that actually does is it makes you turn into a, a steeper spiral. That's basically what the death spiral is. And so if you don't recognize that you're losing so much altitude because you're in a very steep turning angle, there's no recovering from that. Wow. Well, on to something a little bit more positive. <laughs> I want to hear about your music. Uh, I know that you love singing country music, and I heard a rumor that you actually have an album out there. Tell us about your music career. Yeah, so like I said, when I was in high school, I was convinced, well, early high school, I was convinced that I was going to be a, a famous country music singer, and I wrote a um a full album of original songs and recorded it. So, I mean, golly, that was a lifetime ago, but um, it is available on iTunes. <laughs> so That's awesome. it's something that, um, yeah, people can get. I don't know if I've gotten any money from it, but it's, it's there. It's something that I've always been passionate about. I play guitar and piano and I, uh, still something that I enjoy doing. I was actually recently in a, uh, here in, in Myrtle beach, actually, you know, the, the North and South Carolina, there's a radio station that takes local musicians and puts their music on the air. And there's basically a little contest uh, with it. So actually having my songs airing on the radio was, was, was pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. That is cool. I want to go back to the cabinet stuff just for a minute, because I've seen some of your work and I'm going to include in the show notes a link to that Rubik's Cube you made, which was just incredible to me. What has been the most satisfying thing that you've ever created out of a piece of wood? Well, the Rubik's Cube was was neat. Kind of the backstory for that is you know, when I was, I was working in the shop, um, a gentleman pulled up and he wanted a Rubik's Cube to be made out of wood. I had no idea that there were so many people that were fascinated with we have Rubik's cubes, right. <laughs> but there's apparently a, a very large group of, of people out there that are, are very fascinated with that puzzle cube. I had, you know, other than just playing with a Rubik's cube a couple minutes here and there when I was a kid, I, I really had no idea how it worked. And so, uh, first of all, I didn't know if it was going to be possible to do. And second of all, I had no idea how I would actually quote him on the project. And so what I ended up doing was um, agreed that I would build it, keep track of the hours. And if he wanted it, then great. If not, then I thought it sounded like a, a fun project to do and I would keep it and try to sell it or, or whatever. And so I went out to Walmart and I bought myself a Rubik's cube and I looked up how to, how to take the thing apart. And it's actually a very simple mechanism. I mean, a lot of people think there's like springs and bungees and this and that, but there's not basically all it is is the six sides of the cubes the center square on each cube pivots on an XYZ axis. So that one center square will pivot. And what it does is there's actually an intrinsic track that's made where the squares along the outside perimeter of each face have a little piece that projects underneath the center square. And when it spins, it kind of holds them all together as they, as they spin around. So right. the design is actually not difficult, but what was incredibly difficult was I was making this about about a ten and a half inch per side, and the reason I chose that is because I have an an eight inch um, dado blade set that I needed to carve out all my coved radiuses to make this because the challenge was the level of precision in making all these pieces so that when it was spinning, it wasn't too loose or it didn't bind. And again, I had to make all sorts of different jigs to hold it. Um, I used the, I said the, the eight inch blade and passed the, the wood kind of sideways across the blade to make a perfect eight inch radius, cove cut radius. 
there's a whole lot of thinking in, in making that, but it came out great. And what I did is I, I got six different pieces of granite uh, for each of the different colors. And I inlaid that granite square into the sides so that I have my, you know, my red, my orange, I'm sorry, my red, my yellow, you know, et cetera. And uh, at the end of the day, I think the price tag came out to be like, Forty-five, five thousand, forty-five hundred, or five thousand dollars, and so wow. the guy, the guy didn't take it. The guy didn't take it, but it was certainly a a neat thing. And I and I did write up some instructions with some pictures and whatnot of how to actually make it. If anybody's interested in, in making their own, I'd be happy to share that. Many years ago, working my way through college, I worked with a custom cabinet shop selling their services to, to builders there in town and just uh, got a great love for the, the work that goes into creating these uh, amazing spaces. And you are one of the only persons I've ever met in my life that actually did the entire kitchen yourself. What was that project like? Yeah. Hindsight, that was not a very good idea. Because... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we when we bought our current house, um, my wife and I had always known that we wanted to add on. We've got three children, and the the people that um, built the house were a retired couple, so it really didn't fit our needs. But it was a great location and where we wanted. So when the time finally came to do the the addition, you know, I have a, a thousand um, square foot detached uh, cabinet shop, and so I was like, well, you know, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna, I just have to do everything myself, right? And so the kitchen. Um, I designed and built, there was also um, about 12 solid mahogany doors, you know, mortise and tenon mahogany French doors and, and that I built all of the wainscoting and trim. I have my own molding machine, so I ran all the molding. I did not put the molding up. I actually, we had, you know, a trimmer do that, but it was just an absolutely insane thing to do because um, I started... I started with the doors, the mahogany doors, in September of 2019. We broke ground on the addition in December of 2019, and then we finished in August of 20. So in that time frame, I had to do all the work, plus be a full-time orthopedic surgeon, plus a father of three and a husband, plus you know the the, the flight simulation business. So needless to say, I was running myself pretty ragged, <laughs> but everything, everything came out um, really well. And, and then there's certainly something to be said for doing the work yourself and doing it the way you like it. You know, I did all inset doors with a beaded face frame and, you know, a lot of, a lot of little details that otherwise wouldn't have been done. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy I did it, but I would never do it again. It's just amazing stuff. Orthopedic surgeon, entrepreneur, cabinet maker, multi-instrument musician, engineer, prototyper. I could go on and on. You really embody the definition of a Renaissance man. And I'm so excited about the work that you're doing there in Conway, South Carolina, helping people become better pilots, uh, helping your patients and just everything you do. I really appreciate you coming on the show to, to share your story with us. Inspiring stuff. Oh, of course. Well, thank you so much for thinking of me and, and taking the time to, to chat. Wow, what an amazing conversation with truly one of the most interesting people I have ever met, Dr. Tyler Noble. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with Device Nation. I always love seeing what entrepreneurial surgeons come up with when they decide to go wide. I have sat in that very simulator and it is incredible. Nobleflightsim.com. Check it out. Buy one. Put it in your living room. Fly around your neighborhood. You won't be able to do any strafing runs, but it'll be a lot of fun and you'll learn how to fly safe. It's all about flying safe and that's what our deep and wide series is all about putting all of us in the best position possible when the inevitable turbulence, when the fashion your seatbelt light comes on, hits our medical device plane. You do this job long enough, you are going to feel that. So I am so excited about the opportunity to bring conversations with successful device reps and just great people to you over the forthcoming episodes. 
bringing you the best of the best because you are the best of the best and you deserve nothing less. I love this quote. The bad news is time flies, but guess what? The good news is you're the pilot. So wish you all great success this week and look forward to getting together with you next time.